0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Craig Evans. He is a, a professor and scholar, and he's the author of Jesus and the Manuscripts, what We Can Learn from the Oldest Text. The book is published by Hendrickson. is a fascinating review of the scriptures affirming that we can trust what the Bible teaches in the form that we currently have. But he'll be joining us uh, in the second half of this hour. Well, taking a look at some of the headline news, there's a bipartisan bill in the Oregon legislature that would fully reopen schools. From the Oregon House Republicans Caucus. Now, how successful will it be? Well, HB 3399 would commit Oregon to fully reopening schools for an in-person learning by the start of the 2021-2022 school year. Now, you'd like to think that wouldn't be necessary, but... Probably will be. Well, today, a bicameral bipartisan bill was introduced that would ensure access to full in-person instruction for the next school year. HB 3399 from Representative Vicki Breeze Iverson, she's a Republican out of Prineville, would direct the Oregon Department of Education to provide 100% in-person person instruction for the next school year. Well, the chief sponsors include Senator Fred Girard, a Republican from Staten, Representative Christine Drazen, a Republican from Canby, and Representative Shelley Boeshardt uh, Davis, who is a Republican from Albany. Now, it says it's a bipartisan bill, but these are the sponsors. Well, this past year and a half have been really uh, hard on kids in Oregon. I've seen it firsthand with my own boys, says Representative Breeze Iverson. We have all the facts showing us it's safe for them to be in school, so we can't wait any longer. Hybrid learning has been a start, but fully reopening schools will give them the consistent and dependable schedule of in-person instruction that is so valuable for their learning. We know it's safe to attend school, and we know the negative side effects of distance learning, um, and that's unacceptable. So what we are waiting, or so what are we waiting for? Uh, Senator Girard added, uh, we should have made this uh, promise to kids months ago. We have to draw a line in the sand and let parents know that they can depend on the public school system next year. Well, the bill has been introduced. Uh, I believe this was actually on Saturday of this last week. Well, White House chief of medical uh, chief medical advisor, rather, Dr. Anthony Fauci said mask wearing could be seasonal to combat uh, respiratory illness after the coronavirus pandemic is over. Huh. Well, Dr. Fauci, uh, the nation's top infectious diseases expert, said mask wearing could be a seasonal habit. Um, Fauci, the White House's chief medical advisor, said during a Sunday interview with NBC's Meet the Press, it was quite possible that people will decide to wear masks seasonally to prevent catching colds or the flu. Now, you'll note He said people will decide to wear masks. We've had practically a non-existent flu season this year merely because people were doing the kinds of public health things that were directed predominantly against COVID-19, he said. So it is conceivable that as we go on a year or two or more from now, that during certain seasonal periods, um, when we have respiratory born illnesses or viruses like the flu, people might actually elect to wear masks to diminish the likelihood that you'll spread uh, these respiratory borne diseases. Let me just uh, for the record say that I will not choose to wear a mask during those seasons once the uh, COVID um, and uh, coronavirus threat has passed well this year's flu season again was virtually non-existent it's been an amazing year said dr john schwartzberg he's a professor emeritus of infectious diseases at the university of california berkeley according to usa today and all my years of being a flu watcher i've never seen anything like this well of course we've been distanced from one another and we've been wearing masks because of what we're being told is a life-threatening virus It's not like what uh, doesn't kill you makes you stronger, he said. We don't need to be exposed to influenza on a regular basis and get sick to have stronger immune systems. Well, recent guidance from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention states fully vaccinated people can gather indoors without wearing a mask and conduct activities outdoors without wearing masks except in crowded areas. Uh, When asked during an ABC News interview on Sunday about whether relaxing indoor mask mandates will be a possibility soon, Dr. Fauci said, I think so. And I think you're going to probably be seeing that as we go along and as more people get vaccinated, that will be the case. And he added, we do need to start being more liberal about mask wearing requirements. Now, what that means more specifically, I'm not entirely sure Well, investors and traders will be paying close attention to crude oil prices today after a cyber attack shut down the largest pipeline system in the United States on Friday. This is the colonial pipeline, and there was a cyber attack. Well, crude oil prices are currently trading around $65 a barrel, according to oilprice.com. A Colonial Pipeline company operates the 5,500-mile Colonial Pipeline system. It takes fuel from the refineries of the Gulf Coast to the New York metro area. Well, the pipeline transports more than 100 million gallons a day, or roughly 45% of fuel consumed on the East Coast, according to the company's website. It delivers fuels, including gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, and heating oil, and serves U.S. military facilities. This is a big deal. And while most experts expect gasoline prices to be unaffected, Affected if the pipeline is back online in, a ne- in the next few days. Yuri Dvorkin, who's the assistant professor of electrical and computer engineering at the New York University and Tandon School of Engineering, told Fox Business on Friday that a prolonged shutdown's effect on prices could be comparable to that of Hurricane Sandy. Well, Colonial Pipeline said in a statement on Sunday that it operates um, its operations team was developing systems to restart In other developments, Colonial Pipeline, the FBI says the FBI is aware of the network's disruption. The U.S. government is working to aid the top fuel pipeline operator after the cyber attack. And the cyber attack on the U.S. pipeline is linked to a criminal gang and could affect gas prices, an expert warns, as FBI, DHS, DOE investigate. By the way, I read uh, later in the morning that this may be linked to a Russian gang of some sort. That's a developing story well pbs uh yamichi alcindor is downplaying the border crisis praising president biden rather for reuniting families separated under biden well the commentator used her debut on pbs's washington week to praise president joe biden for reuniting families at the u.s southern border while downplaying the mounting migrant crisis created under his administration pbs was fiercely critical last week for um Uh, criticized, I should say, last week for tapping the liberal reporter to host a show they described as a mix of depth, balance and civil discourse. Critics claimed Alcindor uh, didn't meet the qualifications for the gig because of her outspoken left-wing activism. In her first segment of the show on Friday, Alcindor gushed over the Biden administration's reunification of families separated at the southern border by President Donald Trump. The current White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour later touched on Biden's plan to combat the Influx of migrants, but stopped short of blaming his policies for that surge. We had major immigration news this week. The Biden administration carried out some of its first reunifications of families separated at the southern border under former President Trump, Alcindor told viewers. These uh, are such emotional scenes. These are really scenes that really tug at your heartstrings. Close quote. Well, she was uh, ripped earlier this year for publicly calling Biden in his first uh, solo press conference as a moral, decent man. When asking a question on the same topic, critics slammed her as far left at the time. Well, in other developments, Caitlyn Jenner says California immigrants should have a path to citizenship. He plans to challenge the uh, governor, if unseated, in the recall effort. Kamala Harris has gone 47 days without a news conference since being tapped for her role in the border crisis. And a Texas sheriff blasted the Biden administration for making the National Guard pick up garbage at the border. And Stephen Miller is slamming Biden's immigration policies as reckless and immoral on life, liberty and leaven, the radio program. A Colorado Springs birthday party shooting uh, left 11 rather left seven dead, including the gunman. The Colorado Springs birthday party erupt uh, abruptly ended in gunfire on Saturday evening after a man opened fire, killing seven officers with the Colorado Springs Police Department responded to the a report of a shooting at approximately 12:18 a.m. Saturday evening uh, in um, Preakness Way. In the uh, in the area of Colorado. Well, upon arriving at the trailer, responding uh, officers discovered six deceased adults, one man with serious injuries. The man was transported to a local hospital where he later succumbed to his injuries. The suspected shooter was the boyfriend of a female victim at the party attended by friends, family and children. He walked inside and began shooting before killing himself according to police the children at the trailer were uninjured by the suspect and are now with relatives police have not relieved the na- released rather the names of the victims or the suspect and an investigation is underway to determine the motives you're listening to the georgine rice show
0: you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour of today's program, we're going to talk with Dr. Craig Evans. He's the author of Jesus and the Manuscripts, What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts. He'll be joining us in the second hour of today's program. I also want to let you know that pastor and bestselling author Greg Laurie was one of those fortunate few blessed with an insider view of Billy Graham's world. For more than two decades, well, this month you can enter to win Greg Laurie's book, The Man I Knew, Billy Graham. Well, this um book isn't meant to be a definitive historical biography of Billy Graham. It's written through the eyes of a friend, a high uh, a highlight reel, if you will. Well, this book is a biopic of his uh shaping experiences and the people who impacted him, according to Greg Laurie. You can enter to win a signed copy of The Man I Knew online at kpdq.com. So check it out, the book of the month, The Man I Knew by Greg Laurie. Well, the Philly uh, gun violence left three dead and 16 injured in a violent weekend, and a Rochester teenager was hurt after a vehicle crashed into um, her house... Following a massive brawl, Rhode Island is investigating the death of a man um, uh, handcuffed by police. Questions, of course, remain. A Times Square shooting um, person of interest has been identified. Police say he intended to shoot his brother. And Nancy Pelosi and President Biden have praised moms on Mother's Day amidst the uh, progressive talk of birthing people. Well, I'll leave you to figure that one out. Georgia middle school student 11 jumped from a school bus to escape bullying, according to his father. And House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy slammed Democrats for destroying the country. A Texas boy, 10, was hit by a car while crossing the street with a Mother's Day gift. And Kentucky Derby winner Medina Spirit fails a drug test. Bob Baffert uh, has been hit with suspension. That seems to have been reversed earlier. Uh, And those who bet on the race apparently Uh, will receive what they intended based on the announced outcome at the time of the race. Well, crude oil prices are in focus after the uh, Colonial Pipeline cyber attack. And Jeff Bezos is building a super yacht longer than a football field for an eye-popping sum. You can imagine. Mr. Sass uh, uh, pitches a signing bonus for workers on unemployment who get a job, a signing bonus. Well, Johns Hopkins says the trend of positive tests at COVID uh the era is low. This is using a seven-day rolling average. The data looks at the number of positive tests, which has dropped down to 3.3%. The high was over 22%, according to Johns Hopkins. Well, Worldometers says the daily new cases are also the lowest they've been uh, since before the riots. Meanwhile, a study confirms what evidence presented early on. Lockdowns didn't help stop the spread. President Biden's national health care plan would create a new entitlement and comes with a bloated cost and bureaucracy. You can read more in the Wall Street Journal on that. Meanwhile, as the Biden administration pushes taxing and spending, inflation fears threaten the housing market. Again, you can go to the Wall Street Journal. China's emissions are higher than the rest of the developed world combined. It was the first time China has managed such an enormous feat, and yet China is part of the Paris Agreement. Andrew Yang is condemning defunding the police as his bid to become New York City's next mayor picks up steam. Yang and the other uh, frontrunner, Eric Adams, both appear to be seeking uh, to look into or rather look like Democrats who are tough on crime. Well, the upcoming Olympic Games could see multiple men competing as women, and there are some women finally speaking out against the unfairness of it all. Maybe too little too late, however. Bernie Sanders is blasting Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer for their effort to cut taxes on the wealthy. Uh, from the story, during an interview with Axios, Jonathan Swan, the Vermont senator, was asked if he supports fully restoring the state and local tax deductions, or SALT. As part of the uh, president of President Trump's signature tax reform legislation, those deductions were capped at $10,000, allowing taxpayers, rather, in high tax states to deduct the amount of state and local income or property taxes from the amount they paid in federal income taxes. Pelosi and Schumer, both from high tax states, have supported Removing the cap. Sanders, however, blasted the Democratic leadership's position. And a Facebook oversight board member is criticized. Uh, the decision to ban Donald Trump permanently. From that story, Mitch McConnell said that while they believed that the ban was uh, right, the indefinite nature of it wasn't consistent with the rules and was arbitrary. He explained that Facebook rules should apply to everyone equally. What we did say, though, was that they were not justified in taking him uh, down indefinitely, that they did not provide any reason for that. That is not a provision in their rules. That was wrong. I think I said Mitch McConnell out of habit. This was a Uh, an oversight board member for Facebook, whose uh, last name happens to be McConnell. Well, Mr. Mr. Cuomo uh, said that Mets fans will be separated into vaccinated and unvaccinated sessions, sections rather. Some people seem to enjoy creating a stigma around the unvaccinated, unclean, unclean, or maybe a patch with UV unvaccinated is uh, is coming up. A company has created a container to take uh, your fish for a walk. The story includes a number of uh, iterations of the work in progress. I'm not sure people are clamoring to take their fish for a walk, but if you are, apparently there's something in progress. Well, Friendly Fire, a border uh, Democrat slammed President Biden for his failed response to the border crisis. And yes, they actually used that word. Double standards. Uh, the president uh, has waived ethics rules for former union bosses who now work in the White House. It's a pretty good give, if you can get it. Kevin McCarthy, he's officially endorsing Elise Stefanik to replace Liz Cheney. And around the nation, Derek Chauvin and three fellow officers, or former officers, have been indicted on federal civil rights charges. You can read more in National Review. A Colorado shooter walks into a party, kills six and himself. And Montana's governor signs a bill banning transgender athletes from girls' sports. And around the world, Calgary police arrested a Polish pastor who refused to allow police and health officials to disrupt his service, and Israeli police and Palestinian protesters clashed in Jerusalem. The death toll soared to 50 in a school bombing in in the Afghan capital, and Scottish nationalists are vowing an independence vote after an election win. On this day in history, 1869, a golden spike is driven in Promontory, Utah, marking the completion of the first transcontinental railroad in the United States. 1924 J. Edgar Hoover is named acting director of the Bureau of Investigation, later known as the Federal Bureau of Investigation or FBI. 1933 the Nazis stage massive public book burnings in Germany. 1940 during World War II, German forces began invading the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Belgium and France. The same day, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain resigns and Winston Churchill forms a new government. 1994, Nelson Mandela takes the oath of office in Pretoria to become South Africa's first black president. 2013, the IRS apologizes for what it acknowledges was inappropriate targeting of conservative political groups during the 2012 election to see if they were violating their tax-exempt status. To this day, no one has been held accountable for that unlawful action. Well, over the weekend, the U.S. was hit with its worst cyber attack to date. As the nation's largest fuel pipeline company, Colonel um, Pipeline, was forced to shut down a 5,500-mile stretch of pipeline that supplies some 45% of fuel consumed on the East Coast. The Georgia-based company shut down the pipeline after its business-side computer system was compromised by a ransomware attack. We proactively took certain systems offline to contain the threat. Which has temporarily halted all pipeline operations and affected some of our i t systems, uh, colonial explained this is hugely consequential, consequential rather, there are a couple of takeaways first about our infrastructure and second regarding who 's responsible, fuel shortages uh, causing a spike in prices. Uh, is a real possibility if the pipeline is not brought back online within the next few days. The company stated on Sunday that it will bring our full system back online only when we believe it is safe to do so and in full compliance with the approval of all federal uh, regulations, end quote. Energy researcher Amy Myers Jaff observed that this was not a minor target, Colonial pipeline is ultimately the jugular of the U.S. pipeline system. It's the most significant, successful attack on energy infrastructure we know of its um, uh, of its kind in the United States. We'll continue to take a look at this worst cyber attack in U.S. history when we return in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Once again, we were talking about the worst cyber attack in U.S. history that signals some real trouble. Fuel shortages causing a spike in prices is a real possibility if the pipeline isn't brought back online. And of course, uh, uh, those in charge are saying that they'll put it online when they think it, they can safely do so and meet federal regulations. I quoted Amy Myers, who is a uh, an energy researcher. She observed this is not a minor target. Colonial Pipeline is ultimately the jugular of the U.S. pipeline system. It's the most significant, successful attack on energy infrastructure we know of in the United States. We're lucky if there are no consequences, but it's a definite alarm bell end quote. Well, Senator Ben Sass responded by hitting Democrats for their terminology games with expanding what constitutes actual infrastructure and therefore hanging up a true uh, infrastructure bill. There's obviously much still to learn about how this attack happened, but we can be sure of two things. This is a play that will be run again, and we're not adequately prepared. If Congress is serious about an infrastructure package, at front and center should be the hardening of these critical sectors, rather than progressive wish lists masquerading rating as infrastructure. And given Joe Biden's uh, actions in revoking the Keystone XL pipeline permits as uh, part of the Green New Deal assault on American energy production, combined with his two trillion dollar infrastructure plan, in quotes, uh, that's uh, light on actual infrastructure, it's evident that pipelines are infrastructure that Biden's just not interested in and getting behind. Finally, the most likely culprit for the cyber attack has been identified as the criminal cyber gang known as DarkSide, a group that likens itself to Robin Hood and is known for targeting Western businesses while avoiding attacking hospitals, schools, and government. Tellingly, though, it has uh, the Kremlin written all over it. As Andrew Rubin, CEO of cybersecurity company Illumio, contends, whether they work for the state or not is increasingly irrelevant, given Russia's obvious policy of harboring and tolerating cybercrime. Vladimir Putin certainly wasn't keen on Donald Trump's work to make America's energy, uh, America energy independent or his challenge to Russian domination in natural gas production. It's no surprise to see Putin's organized crime cutouts attack the U.S. in such a way. So how will Biden respond? That is an open question, and again, his cybersecurity plan does not actually address this particular area. Meanwhile, the national average for gas prices jumped six cents on the week of uh, to two dollars and ninety-six cents, and it's poised to rise even higher in some areas due to the cyber attack I mentioned on Friday of uh, Colonial Pipeline Company, according to the American Automobile Association or AAA. Colonial Pipeline operates 5,500 miles of its system, taking fuel from the refineries of the Gulf Coast to the New York metro area. The pipeline transports more than 100 million gallons a day, or roughly 45 percent of the fuel. Well, this shutdown will have implications on both gasoline supply and prices, but the impact will vary regionally, AAA spokesman Jeanette McGee said in a statement. Areas including Mississippi, Tennessee, and East Coast uh, from Georgia into Delaware are most likely to experience limited fuel availability uh, and price increases as early as this week. These states may see prices increase to three to seven cents. This week, an increase of three more cents would make the national average the most expensive since November of 2014, when average gas prices were 2.99 and higher. Now, of course, here in the Pacific Northwest, we're paying significantly more than that. But we're talking about the East Coast. Well, according to AAA, the nation's top 10 largest weekly increases were in Michigan, up 15 cents, Kentucky, up 12 cents, Florida, 10 cents, Delaware, 10 Indiana, $0.10, West Virginia and Utah, along with Texas, up $0.09, New Jersey up $0.08, and Pennsylvania, $0.07. The the, uh, 10 least expensive markets were Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, South Carolina, Alabama, Oklahoma, Missouri, Tennessee, Arkansas, and North Carolina, with Mississippi $2.61 per gallon. Well, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen got into trouble on Tuesday for telling the truth. That morning at a conference sponsored by The Atlantic, she raised the possibility that one day the Federal Reserve may raise interest rates to make sure our economy doesn't overheat. Well, anyone with a basic understanding of economics knew that she was talking about the combination of President Joe Biden's gargantuan spending and the accelerating economic recovery may well lead to a rise in consumer prices and hikes in interest rates. But an end to the Federal Reserve's program of easy money would hurt asset prices and possibly employment as well, Well, which is not um, what most investors want to hear. When Yellen – when her words reached Wall Street, the market tanked. By the afternoon, she was in retreat telling the Wall Street Journal CEO Summit that she had been misunderstood. She uh, She said, let me be clear, that's not something I'm predicting or recommending. No, of course not, but it still might happen anyway. Well, a specter is haunting the Biden administration, the specter of, dare I say it, inflation. Past inflations have not only harmed consumers, savers and people of fixed incomes, they've also brought down politicians. Among the risks to the Democratic congressional majority is a rise in prices that lifts inflation to near the top of voters' concerns, Uh, coupled by the type of federal rate increase that hits stocks and housing. Inflation is one more signpost on the road to Republican revival, along with illegal immigration, crime, and semi-closed public schools, embracing far-left critical race uh, theory. Well, the classic definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. Uh, That might also describe America sometime soon, if not already. The economy has started its post-virus comeback. Jobs and growth are on the upswing, at least in some places. U.S. households sit on a trillion-dollar pile of savings – over the last year, on top of its regular spending, the federal government has apportioned uh, or appropriated a mind-boggling amount of money—a tr- two-trillion-dollar CARES Act, a nine-hundred-billion-dollar COVID-19 relief bill, and a two-trillion-dollar American Rescue Plan—and President Biden wants to spend about four trillion dollars more. Well, surging this incredible amount of uh, of money. Uh, the, of cash, if you will, into an economy that is rapidly approaching capacity may have unintended and harmful consequences. But the Biden administration is either unconcerned about inflation or afraid of bringing it up in public. Well, the question is why? Well, one reason is that earlier warnings uh, after the global financial crisis in particular didn't seem to come true. The Inflation may have shown up in the dramatic ascent in prices and in, uh, in stock bonds, as well as the market for high-end art, for example. Another reason is that some economists think a little bit of inflation would be a good thing, but the main explanation may be related to status quo bias. Inflation hasn't been a driving force in our economic and public life for decades, and so we pretty much assume it won't be in the future, which is why an experienced leader worries about repeating the mistakes of the past. And yet, for a politician who came to Washington in 1973, our current president has a lack uh, laxadaisical attitude toward inflationary fiscal and monetary policy was he paying attention it was the great inflation of the 60s and 70s caused in part by high spending the arab oil embargo spiraling wages and prices uh, in a heavily regulated and unionized economy that helped ruin the presidents of gerald, presidencies i should say of gerald ford and Jimmy Carter. Inflation led to bracket creep, you might remember that if you were around back then, with voters propelled into higher income tax brackets by monetary forces over which they had no control. And bracket creep inspired the tax revolt, supply-side economics, and the Reaganite idea that in this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem, Government is the problem. Well, the eventual cure for inflation was the painful shock therapy administered by Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker at the time. And uh, what at the time was the worst recession since the Great Depression? Why anyone would want to repeat this experiment in the dismal science is a mystery. Biden, however, is fixated not on inflation, but on repudiating the legacy of the man known for describing it as always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon in the sense that it is and can be the proudest only, or rather produced only, by a more rapid increase in the quantity of money than in, in output. Well, Milton Friedman, uh, Friedman rather, whose um, empiricism led him to embrace free market public policy, was the most influential economist of the second half of the 20th century. But Biden has a habit of treating Friedman as a devilish spirit who must be exercised from the nation's capital. For Biden, Friedman represents deregulation, low taxes, and the idea that a corporation's primary responsibility is not to a group of politicized stakeholders, but to its shareholders. Milton Friedman isn't running the the show anymore. Biden told Political last year, "When uh, when did Friedman die and become king? Biden asked in 2019. The truth is that Friedman, who died in 2006... Uh, has held little sway over either Democrats or Republicans for almost two decades. But Biden wants to mark the definitive end of Friedman and the neoliberal economics that he espoused by unleashing a tsunami of dollars into the global economy and um, uh, undoing Americans' uh, uh, past with new entitlements. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to continue in just a moment, so stay with us. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with Dr. Craig Evans. He is the author most recently. He's authored many, many books, but this uh, latest, Jesus and the Manuscripts, what we can learn from the oldest texts. It really is fascinating. It not only covers uh, the scriptures, but other texts in which the Gospels or Jesus are referenced, putting them Uh, In their proper context and explaining why this is not part of the Christian canon, why this is and so on. So are the scriptures reliable? We'll discuss that with Dr. Evans coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, a a sensible scientist is unsettling the left and Douglas Andrews writes about it in the Patriot Post in which he points out in a 2005 lecture he gave at Caltech, the late Michael Crichton, who was the author of Jurassic Park, you may be more familiar with that than his name, and holder of a medical degree from Harvard had this to say about the impact of science. And I'm quoting, rather than serving as a cleansing force, science has in some instances been seduced by the more ancient lures of politics and publicity. Some of the demons that haunt our... world in recent years are invented by scientists. The world has not benefited from permitting these demons to escape free. End quote. Well Crichton was certainly prophetic about the politicization of science, but one wonders what he'd make of the scientific community's more recent lurch leftward, its weirdly anti-scientific approach to the COVID-19 pandemic, and especially its theoretic approach to climate change, whose science the left insists was long ago settled. Well settled. Um, not so, says physicist Stephen Koonin. He was the former undersecretary of science during the Obama administration. Now, Koonin is also the author of a new book, Unsettled, in which he writes, and I quote, The science is insufficient to make useful projections about how the climate will change over the coming decades, much less what effect our actions will have on it, end quote. That statement alone should be comforting to global warming skeptics who have so far, through sheer force of will, staved off Al Gore's 15-year-old warnings of impending underwater doom to such cities as Amsterdam, Beijing, Shanghai, Calcutta, Manhattan, and San Francisco. Well, Coonan kicks the hornet's nest right out of the gate in Unsettled, writes Mark Mills. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. In this book, he writes... Uh, in this book's first sentences, he asserts that the science about our planet's climate is anything but settled. Mr. kunin knows well that it is um, nonetheless a settled subject in the minds of most pundits and politicians and most of the population. Kunin, though, as Mills notes, is no climate denier. He believes that the globe is warming and that humans have a hand in it. How big is this hand? How great are the effects? How urgently should governments respond to it? Those questions are among the unanswerables. Well, as for the word denier and its use by the left to equate global warming skeptics with Holocaust deniers, Kunin finds it rather repugnant since, as he writes, the Nazis um, killed more than 200 of my relatives in Eastern Europe. Well, Mr. Kuhn science credentials are impeccable, writes Mills, unlike, say, those of one well-known Swedish teenager to whom the media affords great attention on climate matters. He has been a professor of physics at Caltech, served as the top scientist in Barack Obama's energy department. Well, here's, uh, rather here, we'd offer a word of caution. While not just any um, schlub rates a Caltech professorship, we remind Mills that Obama's science czar, John Holden, Once floated ideas such as forced abortions, compulsory sterilization, and a planetary regime to oversee population levels and protect the Earth from us humans by controlling all of its natural resources. Something to keep in mind. Still, as Mills writes, unsettled packs a a wallop. As Mr. Coonan illustrates, tornado frequency and severity are also not trending up, nor are the number and severity of droughts. The extent of global fires has been trending significantly downward. The rate of sea level rise has not accelerated. Global crop yields are rising, not falling. And while global atmospheric CO2 levels are obviously higher now than two centuries ago, They're not at um, any record planetary high. They are at a low that has only been seen once before in the past 500 million years. Well, by debunking one scientific climate claim after another, Kunin will no doubt leave the alarmists and the eco-fascists well unsettled. Well, here's hoping he has thick enough skin to withstand the attacks that are sure to come. And they most certainly will come. Well, it's been well over a decade since the Supreme Court last decided a meaningful Second Amendment case. Um, That wait is about to end, however. Although District of Columbia versus Heller in 2008 and McDonald versus City of Chicago in 2010 answered some foundational questions about the right to keep and bear arms, the Supreme Court's uh, decade of silence enabled lower courts to undermine these core cases routinely. Well, this in turn allowed states to run roughshod over the Second Amendment. We've gotten our hopes up before that the Supreme Court finally would stop treating the Second Amendment as a second class right, unworthy of um, consistent legal review. Well, just last term, the high court um, excited millions by taking up New York State rifle and pistol versus City of New York, which was about New York City's incredibly restrictive laws on transporting firearms. Well, that excitement came to a crushing end. When the New York City enacted minor changes to its law and the Supreme Court declared the case moot, declining uh, in the interim to take up any of the remaining Second Amendment challenges for the term. Well, many suspected we might go another decade without seeing the court hear another challenge to gun control laws. But last week, the Supreme Court agreed to hear New York State rifle and pistol versus um, Corlett, a case that could have much broader implications for the future of um, strict gun control That it's a moot than rather its moot predecessor. Well, here's some important things to know about the high court's latest Second Amendment case that they have, in fact, agreed to take up. Number one, this case is about the right to carry firearms in public. New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus uh, Corlett provides the Supreme Court with well, the opportunity to address a very important question uh, it so far has declined to answer. When the Second Amendment protects the rights to bear arms, does it mean the right to bear a handgun in public for purposes of self-defense when you are properly licensed and approved um, to carry one? Well, According to New York and a handful of other gun-control-friendly fi- uh, states, the answer has been a resounding No. In these states, the right to bear arms has been effectively restricted to a right to possess and handle a gun in your home and nothing more. If you want to protect yourself with a firearm in public, the state considers it a privilege that you can exercise only after showing good cause, above and beyond a desire to protect yourself from crime in general. Well, in essence, law-abiding citizens in these states have no right to bear arms outside their homes. Well, the petitioners in this new case include two New York residents who have extensive experience and training with firearms. Firearms. Both applied for and were denied carry permits for their firearms because they did not face any special or unique danger to life. Now, I would think living in New York would be sufficient. Well, it appears the court finally has five justices willing to vindicate the rights of these petitioners. Another thing to consider in this Supreme Court case, a good cause and may issue requirements have racist roots. Well, for the first 70 or so years after the Constitution was ratified, Americans undeniably maintained a general right to bear arms in public, with perhaps some state authority to regulate the mode of carry. A minority of states eventually prohibited or heavily regulated the act of carrying a concealed firearm in public, but no state completely eradicated an ordinary citizen's ability to carry some type of firearm in public in some manner without first having to seek permission from the government. Well, all white Americans enjoyed the right to bear arms in public. while well, laws heavily regulating the public carry of firearms uh, they were, like all early forms of restricted gun control, reserved for those, uh, for the subjugated of slaves and other individuals who were at the time legally considered as falling outside of the people of the United States. Well, even after slavery was abolished and the 14th Amendment forbade race-based gun restrictions, many southern states looked to radically uh, neutral the highly discretionary gun control laws to effectively disarm black citizens. Well, the Florida Supreme Court in 1941 provided some insight into just how blatantly and openly states use discretionary permit systems to deprive black Americans of their rights. The original act of 1893 was passed when there was a great influx of Negro laborers in this state. This is quoting from Justice Rivers Buford, nonchalantly explaining the racist origins of the enforcement of the law. The act was passed for the purpose of disarming the Negro laborers and to give the white citizens in sparsely populated areas a better feeling of security. The statute was never intended to be applied to the white population, and in practice, was never been so applied. Well, the reality is that today's good cause requirement may not be overtly racist, but in practice, they serve to disproportionately exclude people of color from the ability to protect themselves in public with firearms. Constitutional implications aside, this makes discretionary licensing. Poor public policy, and that's one element that the Supreme Court will look into. Now, I'm going to come back after the top of the hour break, and we'll explain the third um, in this Supreme Court case uh, that uh, they are going to hear at some point in their next uh, their next session. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Coming up in the next couple of segments, we're going to talk with Dr. Craig Evans. He is the author of Jesus and the Manuscripts, What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts. The book is published by Hendrickson. I think you'll find it as fascinating as I did. That conversation coming up in our next segment right here on the Georgine Rice Show. Uh, Before the break, I was talking about three things to know about the Second Amendment return to the Supreme Court. I went through the first two and wanted to get to the Mm -hmm. final because I think it's important to consider what the Supreme Court will be uh, looking at when they take this case up. Uh, the third thing is public carry will not turn us into the Wild West. Now, many gun control advocates insist that if the Supreme Court strikes down good cause requirements, then the nation will be turned into the Wild West of gun violence. In other words, the Second Amendment shouldn't protect a right of ordinary citizens to bear arms in their own defense because ordinary citizens largely are incapable of acting in a reasonable manner when armed with Uh, Armed in the public. Now, this is during a season in which we are saying, as a culture, I say we broadly because the vast majority of Americans don't agree with this notion that law enforcement should be either disarmed or radically curtailed. Well, decades of plain data show just the opposite. Between 1990 and 2000, 16 states changed their concealed carry laws from either no issue or may issue to shall issue permitting. During that time, national rates for violent crime, homicide by gun, and other gun crime plummeted. Over 19 million American adults now possess a concealed carry permit, up from roughly 3 million adults in 2000. If gun control advocates were correct about their Wild West hypothesis, surely the last two decades would have been an increasingly violent mess. Now, one explanation might be that uh, would-be violent criminals are aware that among uh, fellow citizens, a good percentage of them may in fact be prepared to defend themselves or to defend others. Uh, in the event that a crime is um, is underway. Well, if gun control advocates uh, were correct, it would be just the opposite. The data clearly do not bear that out. Violent crime rates continue to, in general, downward trend, while gun homicide and other gun crime rates remained consistently low after plateauing in 2011, or around there. It turns out that ordinary law-abiding citizens, and again, we're talking about law-abiding citizens, absolutely can be trusted to bear arms in public, just like the plain text of the Constitution envisions. Well, hopefully the Supreme Court soon will vindicate the tens of millions of American citizens currently deemed to have insufficient cause to exercise their constitutional rights. And this is what's at stake when the Supreme Court uh, will take up this issue in its next um, session. Well, last week, President Biden unveiled his American Families Plan. I love the name of that, American Families Plan. Who on earth would be opposed to a plan to benefit American families? The problem is it would dramatically expand the federal government's role in education and family life. Well in addition to paid leave, subsidized childcare and 2 years of free community college for all Americans, the 1.8 trillion dollar plan aims to provide taxpayer-funded universal preschool uh for all 3 and 4 year olds, like it or not. Well, paid for by tax hikes on higher income earners and accumulated wealth, Biden's uh, proposed plan would actually cost closer to two point five trillion dollars, which increasing government debt and decreasing uh, GDP, according to a new study released Wednesday by the Wharton School of Business. The Biden administration calculates that the free universal preschool proposal alone will cost two hundred billion dollars, although the Wharton uh, model suggests that is a low estimate. And, um, you know, the federal government is notorious for underestimating the cost of expanding the federal government. Well, here's some uh, reasons that free universal preschool um, long ago of progressive activists and politicians should be vigorously opposed. Number one, we need less government involvement in education, not more. Um, championing his American Families Plan in last week's uh, speech to Congress. The president now guarantees four additional years of public education for every person in America, starting as early as we can with two years of preschool and two years of community college. Twelve years is no longer enough today. Uh, to compete with the rest of the world in the 21st century he said so he made the point that this is school not daycare which the teachers unions will fully embrace well the president also added that our nation made 12 years of public education universal in the last century it made us the best educated best prepared nation in the world yet the data don't support this assertion in fact u.s academic performance is rather mediocre compared with other developed countries According to the results of the most recent international PISA exam for 15-year-olds that assesses academic performance in 79 countries, 30 countries outperformed the United States in math and reading scores have remained flat for years. These lackluster results occur even as the U.S. spends more on education than any other countries. Within the U.S. academic performance in the nation's government schools is similarly bleak. The 2019 results of the National Assessment of Education Progress, which is often referred to as the nation's report card, reveal that math and reading scores dropped for fourth and eighth graders Since 2017, for 12th graders, 2019 math scores were flat overall and reading scores uh, declined since the test was previously administered to seniors in 2015. Among the lowest performing students, both math and reading scores dropped. If the government can't even ensure strong academic outcomes for K through 12 students currently within its purview, then why should its role be expanded to younger and older students with taxpayers footing the bill? Now, the second reason is the federal government shouldn't be involved in education at all. Um There's no constitutional role for the federal government in education. James Madison, known as the father of the Constitution, wrote in the Federalist Papers, number 45, the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite, end quote. Well, expanding the federal government's involvement in early childhood uh, and higher education through the president's proposed plan will create long-lasting tentacles at the state and local levels that can be made uh, rather manipulated depending on who's in power. Education policies and decisions should be made by individual states and local areas, empowering taxpayers and parents to vote with their feet against bad policies. You don't like the policy, you move or you advocate locally. Another is that government preschool is already a failure. We've had government preschool programs in place for decades, and they fail to produce sustained positive outcomes for students while costing taxpayers billions of dollars. Now, some studies show positive results of public preschool programs for low-income children, but these results are often fleeting. And for most middle school and upper-income uh, children, the long-term benefits of preschool programs are negligible the the uh, brookings institute explained back in 2017 that the offsited studies showing positive gains for state preschool programs are inadequate and that more in-depth studies of lasting impact uh, including the head start uh, impact study and the tennessee voluntary pre-k study reveal that any short-term benefits were going by the uh, uh, in, or gone, rather, by the end of kindergarten. More alarming, by third grade and academic performance of children in Tennessee pre-K um, programs actually lagged behind the control group of kids who did not participate in the program. And then finally, expanding the welfare state weakens families. The American Families Plan is being touted as a program that's going to strengthen families, but more government involvement in education is only going to weaken families. Parents who choose not to send their kids to preschool or individuals who choose not to have children will bear the burden of subsidizing preschool for others. Universal preschool programs unnecessarily raise the cost of stay-at-home parenthood. It imposes additional costs on those who choose to remain childless. Only about half of uh, three- and four-year-olds are currently enrolled in pre-kindergarten programs, but a government push to universal preschool might pressure others to move in that direction. Well, all of that to say, we have some uh, some serious considerations uh, with regard to the plan that's being recommended. And uh, taking these into account will help us anticipate uh, the universal um, preschool program that the president has uh, proposed. We'll revisit that at some point in the future. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is reversing a, a rule initiated by former President Trump that defined sex as biological in an effort to prevent discrimination against transgender people in health care practices, the Department of Health and Human Services announced on Monday. Well, the notice of enforcement, while not a binding federal rule, signals that the federal government will begin interpreting Section 1557, the non-discrimination provision of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, to include a ban on discrimination based on sexual identity rather than simply banning discrimination based on biological sex, as the Trump administration had. Well, the change will likely require that states which set their own Medicaid eligibility requirements provide gender reassignment surgery and hormone therapy to Medicaid recipients. Well, coming up in our next few segments, we're going to talk with Dr. Craig Evans. He's the author, most recently, of Jesus and the Manuscripts, what we can learn from the Old Testament. It's really rather fascinating. Uh, He takes uh, into account not only uh, the manuscripts that are part of the Christian canon, but those that were rejected, and other sources that make reference to Jesus and rumors that have circulated, both contemporary and ancient uh, that have been disproved um, around the Gospels and the person and life of Jesus Christ. Dr. Craig Evans joining us in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. I'm so looking forward to a conversation with my guest, who's the author of Jesus and the Manuscripts, What We Can Learn from the Oldest texts. He points out that Jesus and in the book, Jesus and the Manuscripts, it introduces readers to the diversity and complexity of the ancient literature that records the words and deeds of Jesus, or at least uh, purports to record them. This diverse literature includes the familiar gospels of the New Testament, the much less familiar literature of the rabbis, and the uh, Quran and the Uh, I can't even ever say this word correctly, the narratives and uh, brief snippets of material found in fragments and inscriptions. Well, in this significant book, well-known scholar and professor Dr. Craig Evans critically analyzes important texts and quotations in their original languages and engages in current scholarly discussion, exploring important questions such as those surrounding the relationship between the Gospel of Thomas and the New Testament Gospels. Well, my guest, Dr. Craig Evans, um, is the John Bisaggio, Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University in Texas. He is the author or editor of over 90 books and has appeared in more than 100 television documentaries and news programs. I appreciate that he's carved out some time to talk with us here today regarding his latest book, Jesus and the Manuscripts. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Evans.
1: Hey, my privilege. Glad to be with you.
2: Well, let me begin by asking you um, to whom this book is written. It certainly is scholarly in its approach, but it's also approachable, I would think, to the average reader. To whom is this book written, and to whom do you recommend it? <laughs>
1: well, of course, it is primarily uh, designed for uh, people who do serious Bible study and ask. They have inquiry minds. They want to know, hey, where, where, where? What are the manuscripts, and are they really reliable? how many do we have, how old are they, that sort of thing. But also a far more complex question is, what are the other manuscripts, the ones that are not in the New Testament, that uh, are outside the canon, what do they tell us about Jesus? And also, what about manuscript tradition that isn't Christian at all? And in your uh, uh, introductory comment, you noted that, you know, Jesus appears in the Koran, he appears in the Jewish Talmud, Uh, He appears in other traditions, pagan traditions. He's actually appealed to in magic texts. And so I wanted to review all of that, put it all between the covers of a single book. And so, yes, there is Greek and Hebrew and Latin, but it's always translated into English, which means Mm -hmm. if, if you're a serious reader, someone like you, of course, you can sit down. You might not know Greek or something like that, but you can read it. You can understand that there are 60 color images in the back. You And you'll go away uh, knowing, oh, that's what this stuff is, and that's what it looks like, I see. So it isn't just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels in the New Testament. You'll learn a lot more about them. But you'll learn about all these other manuscripts, too. And, I, and, and the reviews and the feedback I've received from people is very encouraging.
2: Yeah, I appreciate your... Reviewing the Gospels and the Scriptures in a much broader context because most of us don't have that opportunity. So uh, I think we can appreciate the text of Scripture perhaps a bit more when we understand the broader context. Uh, I guess the first question is can we trust the authenticity of the New Testament in light of everything that you cover in the book? Uh, Can we trust the authenticity of it as it's presented, uh, the canon that we have in our Scriptures? And we'll talk about some of those. Uh, extra um, sources as well.
1: Yes, and the answer, quick answer is yes, we can. And in part, uh, that's the purpose of this book because you look at these other manuscript traditions, which many scholars will accept and say, oh yes, you know, that that's probably correct. And oh yes, that's probably reliable. Well, the New Testament manuscripts, the manuscripts for the New Testament Gospels are much stronger. They're older. They are numerous And because we have everything so well attested, when scribes do make a mistake, and they do, these are handwritten, that's why they're called manuscripts, they're written Mm -hmm. by hand, scribes do make mistakes, but it isn't just as though we have only one copy of Matthew and it has mistakes in it, we have hundreds of copies. And so we can compare, and where the scribes make mistakes, it just sticks out like a sore thumb, it's so obvious So we're able then to uh, get the text right. And by the way, our English Bibles and other foreign language translations are based on very competent, very carefully edited Greek New Testaments. And so when you're reading uh, in English or German or French or Spanish or whatever, uh, the New Testament Gospels, uh, you're reading what the evangelist originally wrote. There's no mistake about it. And so that's a big part of the purpose. So yeah, to answer your question, The New Testament Gospels are uh, richly attested by ancient manuscripts, many manuscripts, and there really isn't any question about how these manuscripts originally read.
2: You make reference to the Jewish Gospels, but you also say that you believe the Gospels were written for Christians. Can you explain those two things and the fact that it's not a conflict, but just clarify what that means?
1: Well, yeah, it's a very good question, and and it's still a little bit, uh, even today, with all that we have, enshrouded in mystery. But uh, there were what we call the Jewish Gospels. We don't know how many there really were. We think they were closely related to the Gospel of Matthew. And these were uh, Jewish groups that believed in Jesus, but not quite the way the mainstream church did. And so they saw him as uh, the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Uh, they might not have quite seen Jesus as divine, or maybe almost. You know, we we just don't know because none of these gospels survive. But we know that they existed because church fathers talk about them and quote them sometimes when they read a little differently. And so that's an interesting question right there. And I wanted to to devote an entire chapter to talking about these lost Jewish Gospels that survive only uh, as quotations.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you believe the Gospels were written for Christians, and of course Christians can be both Jew and Gentile. Um, explain why you believe they were written for Christians.
1: Well, yes, and uh, you know, among some scholars they think, well, Matthew wrote for a particular group of Christians, and John wrote for a particular group, and there could be some truth to that. In other words, when Matthew writes his gospel, the evangelist is in a particular setting. I think he's in a setting where uh, Jewish people who are not Christians, who do not believe in Jesus, are raising all kinds of questions about, does Jesus really fulfill the law? Does he re- really fulfill prophecy? And the evangelist is saying, yes, he really does. And so it tells the story in a way that speaks to that. So I think there's truth to that. But I think the Gospels also uh, were widely circulated. And so by the time we get into the early 2nd century, uh, Christian churches, local churches all over the Mediterranean world, the Roman Empire, were aware of all four of the Gospels, not just one of them. And so in that sense, they were, I think, very much designed to be read by all Christians. But also at the same time, they're being written so that non-Christians, people on the outside looking in and have questions, can read them and, and learn more about Jesus and then hopefully be drawn into the church.
2: You've made several references to the book of Matthew, and you write um, in Jesus and the manuscripts that the book of Matthew enjoyed pride of place in the uh, fourfold gospel collection. I think for many of us, we look at the gospel of John today as sort of the, uh, the pinnacle. Explain how, how Matthew did enjoy a, a pride of place uh, in the early church.
1: Well, you know, that's easily documented. Uh, for one thing, Matthew gets referenced more than any other gospel. When you look at the Church Fathers, all of the writings in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, when the Church wasn't even legal yet in the Roman Empire, Matthew is the Gospel. Matthew is probably quoted more often than uh, Mark, Luke, John combined. So uh, Matthew is extremely important. And then when you count the manuscripts that survive, the oldest fragments and pieces and so on of papyrus, Matthew is again in first place, although that's where John rival. John closely rivals Matthew in Egypt, and so Matthew was the most prominent, and you can think about it, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three that cover the same ground very similarly, they're so close they're called the synoptic gospels, meaning you can see them together. And uh, and Matthew is the one that has apostolic authorship. Mark doesn't, and neither does Luke. So I think that's a reason why, too. And then mm-hmm. Matthew is a great bridge between the Old Testament and the New by quoting the Old Testament and showing how uh, Jesus bridges, you might say, the Old Testament and the New Testament church. So that's another reason. But John, you know, John really was up there cl- close, in a close second place, very popular uh, in, uh, in Egypt, uh, especially where we have so many manuscripts. But, you know, the Jesus in John looks and sounds very very different, very metaphorical, very mysterious. And, and some church fathers found that off-putting. They weren't even sure if John should be in the canon.
2: We're going to continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Dr. Craig Evans. The book is Jesus and the Manuscripts What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Craig Evans. His fascinating book, Jesus and the Manuscripts, what we can learn from the oldest texts. Well, let's talk about the oldest texts. Uh, your book deals with the oldest manuscripts inside and outside the Christian canon. Uh, what are some of the conclusions that you have come to uh, having studied uh, this and presenting it in your book?
1: Well, we have uh, some very old manuscripts. We have fragments that date back to within 100 years, maybe even less than 100 years uh, from the time when the originals were written. That's an extraordinary Mm -hmm. record of preservation. But also, we have reason to believe that the originals were in circulation for a long time. And and why do we know that? Well, it's because church fathers talk about the originals, the, what we call the autographs, the actual manuscript written in the very hand of the author. Uh, they say that Matthew exists. For example, uh, there's a tradition that uh, the John, the original John, the autograph John, was in circulation for over one, over 200 years, and that you think, wow, that that can't, how can that be? or Paul's letters Tertullian at the end of the second century is talking about the originals that Paul himself wrote still in existence well we have evidence because pagans say the same thing they talk about uh, autographs by Aristotle for example still in existence 250 years after they were originally written then we have archaeological evidence and the eruption at Mount Vesuvius is a good case in point we know when these manuscripts came to a sudden end and that was in the year 79 when Vesuvius erupted well we can x-ray the manuscripts they're preserved they were turned into carbon we can't unroll them they would crumble but we can x-ray them and use MRI technology and so we're able to reconstruct them digitally and look at the handwriting and that can be dated and it turns out many of these were 200 and 300 years old when Vesuvius erupted, and it makes sense. I mean, mm-hmm. Georgine, you know, you and I can buy for $10 a paperback at the airport. You know, Nobody could buy a book that cheap in antiquity. Books were terribly expensive, and so nobody threw them away. Uh, The books were really old before you finally discarded them. And so the idea that a book would be in use for 100, 200 years, 300 years, really isn't that unusual. And Christians treasured the writings of the apostles. So if the originals were in existence for 200 years, that controls the text. If you have any doubt about, well, how does Romans read here or how does Matthew read here, You can consult with the original, and so that had a stabilizing effect on the text, and that's why I have great confidence that the New Testament text has been well-preserved, and so these theories that are popular out and about, you know, somebody changed the text, who knows what Jesus really said or did, those theories have no basis in the evidence.
2: We're talking with Dr. Craig Evans, his book, his latest book, Jesus and the Manuscripts. Let's talk about some of the uh, uh, Gospels, if you will, that were not included in the Christian canon. Um, What became of the Gospel of Thomas, and why is it not part of the New Testament?
1: Well, it's not part of the New Testament, number one, I believe, because the uh, person who composed it didn't want it to be the New Testament. And that's not hard. It doesn't take any special calculation to, do, to come up to, with that conclusion. In the opening line, it says, These are the secret words of the living Jesus, which Judas Thomas wrote down. Well, you know, when you say these are the secret words, you're saying they're not the public words. And uh, the the books that were uh, in the canon of Scripture were the books that were read publicly in church. Well, we know that because the the uh, written records all say that. And so church fathers will say, well, you can read in public, you can read in the church, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but you should not read these other writings, which are false, etc., and so on. So we all know those. that was the standard for canonicity. And so when Thomas is written sometime in the 2nd century, I think in the late 2nd century, he says these are the secret words. Right away he's making a statement. He doesn't see his work as canonical at all. And so it's a secret writing which is supposed to correct, update, supplement, something like that, the public gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The other thing, uh, too, Georgine, is that, uh, the, the New Testament Gospels clearly mirror the early first century in the land of Israel. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas mirrors or reflects second century Syria. The ideas there, the asceticism, the esotericism, and things like that. And so there's, you, you know, as one scholar put it, if all we had was the Gospel of Thomas, would we even know that Jesus was Jewish?
2: <laughs> and I think,
1: you know, that just gives away the store.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, You refer to a fifth gospel, the gospel of Peter. And First of all, why is it called the cross gospel, and why wasn't that included in the Christian canon? Well, in this
1: particular case, the gospel doesn't claim to be secret, so it's very open to being read. And by the way, it actually was read in some of the churches in Syria in the second century, a careless bishop. Uh, he didn't mind and then he later realized his name was Serapion. and he go, oops, wait a minute, he read it and realized this thing's got crazy stuff in it and then he told uh, the churches stop reading it, in other words don't treat it as if it's canonical scripture. The reason it's called the cross gospel is because when Jesus uh, comes out of the tomb in the resurrection account, the cross comes out with him that is very mysterious and by the way that re- that gives it away that That was of great interest in some circles in the second century, the idea that the cross somehow is alive and it accompanies Jesus, goes to heaven with him, and will come back from heaven with him when he returns. And, of course, Jesus' head is real tall. It reaches all the way up into the clouds. So this is a, a wild embellishment of the story. I think it's reckless apologetic. It's trying to impress unbelievers, trying to answer the question, of, you know, why are the New Testament Gospels so subdued? You know, two frightened women go to the empty tomb on Easter. Why isn't your account more impressive? Well, Peter's giving a very impressive account. And that's why it doesn't really rival the New Testament Gospels, and it certainly shouldn't be in the canon of Scripture.
2: Uh, you mentioned earlier there are rumors floating about about not only the gospels but the character of Jesus himself. Is there any real evidence whatsoever that Jesus was either married or encouraged homosexual behavior, as some today uh, have argued, is the case?
1: There's not a shred of evidence of that nature. It's it's all it's a modern thing. The idea that uh, you know Jesus might have had a special relationship with Mary. This is all cooked up and modern. Some will say, well, wait a minute. Aren't there some uh, Gnostic Gospels from the 2nd and 3rd centuries that say that? Well, actually not. If you understand Gnosticism and what the Gospel of Mary, for example, or the Gospel of Philip, if you understand what they actually say, uh, all they're claiming is that Mary was a disciple. And this is a a custom, it's an ordinary strategy back in the day, If you want Jesus to say something brand new that is very suspicious, something that we never heard him say anywhere else, like in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, then you write a new gospel and you attribute it to somebody who's lesser known. And so you attribute it to Philip or to Mary or to Thomas or somebody else. That's how you smuggle into the Jesus tradition stuff that Jesus never taught. But even the Gnostics who did that, the knowers, the ones who wanted to know special stuff, even they never thought for a moment that Jesus had a physical relationship with Mary or any other woman. And this other text, this fragment that was much talked about just a few years ago, the Gospel of Jesus' wife is a modern hoax inspired by Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. So no, there, there's nothing to it. A secret mark that supposedly has a naked Jesus you know uh, instructing a in nude youth in the mysteries of the king of heaven that's a modern fiction as well, again, reflecting modern interests in sexuality and nothing to do with antiquity.
2: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Dr. Craig Evans, his book, Jesus and the Manuscripts, what we can learn from the oldest texts. We'll be back in a moment.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Craig Evans. He is the author of Jesus and the Manuscripts: What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts. You have a chapter titled "Jesus in Small Texts." Uh, tell us a bit about uh, what the small texts are and why they're important in uh, in understanding who Jesus is and uh, the reliability of Scripture and the whole context of uh, the truth of this history
1: well thanks for asking about that chapter chapter 10 it was the hardest one to write because everything in it is so diverse uh i i wanted to uh you know the book was getting awfully long but i wanted to include some of these interesting things jesus is you know he's there are stories and teachings inscribed in stone inscribed in metal inscribed on pieces of leather. Uh, fragments, uh, uh, bowls, ceramic bowls. It goes on and on. Jesus appears in so many different text forms. And so I wanted to gather it all together. And a lot of this is pagan, by the way. Some of it is Jewish and some of it is Christian. So when I call it small text, I'm referring to either the text originally was small, one sentence or maybe a paragraph, or it's just a small fragment of what would have been a larger text. And it comes in all kinds of varieties. And in fact, two of these texts could actually date from the first century, which would be very early. We have Jesus' name inscribed on a bone box, the controversial James box, if it does refer to Jesus and his family, well, then that's a very early date. We can precisely date it to the year 63, one year after James, the brother of Jesus, died. It's written in Aramaic, and it says, James, the son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And that would be quite possibly the earliest surviving artifact where Jesus' name is written. Mm. We also have what may be a reference to Jesus as Christ, written on a magician's cup sometime in the middle uh, of the uh, first century. That's really interesting. That's a pagan cup, and some pagan magician thinks he can improve the potency, the power of his magic, by writing Christ on his magic cup. Uh, We have a, a magical text from Egypt written on papyrus that refers to Jesus as the God of the Hebrews, quite possibly as early as the 60s, Or or so of the first century, so these are three examples where Jesus shows up, and it's not even Christian, and uh, and where his name is mentioned. So I wanted to cover all that ground. Now some of it, uh, some of it is spurious and medieval, and I wanted to note that too. Mm -hmm. Some think they have the fragment of the uh, title that was on the cross that said Jesus king of the Jews, I think that's a forgery. But that's what this uh, chapter covers. I think readers will find it fascinating. Jesus was talked about everywhere in the ancient world.
2: Well, I do think it's fascinating because we might hear rumors of this or that, and to put it in its proper context, the source, the origin, and so on, I think helps us all Understand and appreciate, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, understand the veracity of Scripture. Um, now, we're, we're almost out of time, so I want to ask the broad question of what you hope your reader will take away from Jesus and the manuscripts. Um, if they're questioning the reliability of Scripture, if they're questioning other sources or or or. Uh, wonder about other sources in which Jesus is referenced or the Gospels are are, um, are referenced. What do you hope your reader takes away from what I think is a serious and rigorous um, review of the evidence uh, of the Christian canon and other uh, sources that make reference to Jesus and the Gospel?
1: Well, that's a great question, and you've practically answered it in the way you raised the question. I want readers to know that there is rigorous study And so uh, when we talk about the New Testament Gospels or the words of Jesus, this isn't some kind of mushy-headed pie-in-the-sky stuff. There's real serious scholarship behind it. There's real evidence and lots of it. And so when we talk about the Gospels preserving the words of Jesus and his deeds, we know what we're talking about on the basis not of piety and faith, but on the basis of hard evidence. And when people like Dan Brown write silly books, they need to know that that's exactly what they are. They're silly books. Uh, and this stuff like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter, yeah, it's, it's stuff that was written a long time ago, but nobody took it seriously because it doesn't really reflect the historical Jesus. And that's not just a pious, dogmatic opinion, but it's based on careful
2: research. Well, I just want to thank you for the careful research that you have done and making it presentable for those of us who are not scholars to better understand um, what's out there, to put it in its proper context. And I think uh, regard the scriptures um, as highly as we ought, as reliable and a source uh, for wisdom and faith. Dr. Evans, thank you so much for talking with us today.
1: Oh, You're very welcome.
2: Once again, the title of the book, Jesus and the Manuscripts, What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts. The book is published by Hendrickson. I'll also have uh, the link um, on my Facebook page uh, for the show. So if you happen to be in your car and you didn't catch that, um, do catch it. And I want to also encourage you. Um, I think you might find it approachable. It is scholarly. It does cover a lot of material. But if you take your time, I think you'll find it very useful in, uh, in understanding the broader context of, uh, of the Gospels. Well, coming up tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with David Horowitz. He is the author most recently of The Enemy Within, How a Totalitarian Movement is Destroying America. The book is published by Regnery. Looking forward to a conversation with him. I have to tell you, um, David Horowitz, you don't really have a conversation. You kind of introduce him, and he'll tell us all about it. So we'll see if we can work a conversation into that. On Wednesday, we'll talk with uh, Gary Thomas. He's the author of The Glorious Pursuit, Becoming who God created us to be. That book is published by Nav Press. And on Thursday, Linda Evans Shepherd uh, will join us. Her book is praying through every emotion, experiencing God's peace no matter what. And we're living in a time when no matter what seems to apply because uh, the days are unpredictable, which is a good lesson for us to learn in life in general because we tend to think we have more control than we actually do. And we're reminded in this season, who is actually in control. So we'll talk with Linda Evans-Shepard on Thursday. And then on Friday, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news in addition uh, to the more serious uh, headlines as well. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. And if you think about it, Jesus and the manuscripts, I would recommend it. You'll find it very useful. Have a good night.
0: Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast.